Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I'm so pleased that our guest is Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams. Rev. Angel is a Zen priest, author, and founder of the organization Transformative Change. Her work centers on the essential link between inner work, wholeness, and social transformation at scale. With Sounds True, Rev. Angel has created a new audio program. It's called Belonging, From Fear to Freedom on the Path to True Community. In this conversation, Rev. Angel and I talk about how belonging is often something we give other people the power to define for us, and instead, what it means to take back belonging. In Rev. Angel's words, belonging belongs to you. Take a listen. Rev. Angel, you begin your new audio series with Sounds True on belonging by saying, I've spent my whole life navigating belonging. And as a way to both introduce you better to the podcast audience, and also to give people a sense of what you mean by belonging, share with us what you mean. I've spent my whole life navigating belonging. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that. I I feel, you know, we're in this broader conversation, I think, um, nationally and globally, um, in which we're trying to understand race more. And so I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying that it has a lot to do with that. Um, for those of you that can't see me and have never seen me, I'm, I'm kind of like in the middle of the range of Brown. And so on my mother's side of the family, they're, um, uh, considered a black family, they're, um, mixed heritage. Uh, they have a white, white family in the racial background. Um, but they're all fair skin. They're pretty fair skin on my father's side. They're, they're darker skin. And so I'm kind of right in the middle and that, that set up, uh, a dynamic, um, in colorism, um, that I'm kind of in between, um, my parents didn't stay together. And so I sometimes belonged to my mother's side of the family. I sometimes belonged to my father's side of the family and, and, and in that in some ways didn't belong at all. Um, I grew up early in my life uh, in Rigo Park, Lefrak City in Queens. For those of you that are familiar, I think of it as kind of a United Nations. 
uh, lots of different people, lots of different backgrounds. And in that space, I felt a lot of belonging, but I early, early on, uh, somewhere around fourth grade, I was moved to Brooklyn in which there was quite a large divide between um, West Indian blacks and American blacks. And so again, kind of pulled back and forth. Uh, I didn't belong to either group in a strong way. I, I was more, far more comfortable in mixed spaces. And so, you know, through these ways, and then I went to, I went to junior high school in like 90% ethnic Chinese school, um, which I felt a sense of camaraderie and connection with people, but belonging was was odd. And so for, for, for many reasons, you know, throughout my life, um, I have found myself straddling these locations of a kind of in-between. I'm nebulous. I'm nebulous looking. I'm nebulous in terms of my, you know, appropriate belonging to a, a, a particular demographic that, that happens in race, in class. Um, you know, I, I, I grew up in Tribeca in New York and had a lot of access culturally and understanding and um, really uh, far-reaching sort of bohemian cultural values, progressive lefty stuff um, that didn't accord with the neighborhoods that I simultaneously lived in, like in deep Flatbush, Brooklyn. And so I have lived this strange kind of stratified, not quite belonging um, existence for a really long time. And I'd like to know more about uh, a statement you make also right towards the beginning of this audio teaching series and your journey to come to this place, which is you say, belonging belongs to you. And when you said that, I had a moment, I thought, gosh, you know, I think most of us think that belonging is defined by the external things. You know, I don't fit in. I have a different sexual orientation. I'm of a different mixed race. Belonging is about how I relate to all of these external groups? Am I part of the in-group, am I not? And yet you're saying belonging belongs to you. How did you get to that place to make a statement like that? I think that if uh, every single one of us has some place in which we feel that tension of, uh, an, of external belonging and trying to navigate it, uh, it's the hallmark of our existence as human beings, that our sense of belonging defines us as human beings and being able to locate that. Uh, now, if you add to it, like, you know, our maturing adult selves, uh, you know, coming into adulthood, the fact that we are going to be pulled in some ways by a, an, a, a marking our territory, if, we, if, you, as, if you will, as to where it is that we find ourselves belonging, that through the my spiritual path, I, and, and I would say even before my, I, actually I would say that this determined my spiritual path. I realized that I had to have a fundamental belonging that was not predicated on something external because if that were the case, I would always be in a tension with what is going on outside that I actually can't control. So that if I'm gonna have any sense of self-agency, of being able to um, be in alignment with myself and understand my own truth, not pulled by the external forces, by the waves of outside, by what people say, by the fashion, by the time, by the era, by the, you know, by, by gender, you know, by the 
prescriptions of society, the prescriptions of my family, the prescriptions of my church, my culture, you know, all faith, all of those things. I had to get to some place that was going to be, you know, essentially my own. And so I, I have this, this concept of, of one's own belonging, of belonging to oneself first and foremost, and cultivating that as the reference point for discernment about all of the other ways in which we belong. Yeah. So that's what I want to know more about this fundamental sense of belonging. How do we know when, oh, I think I know what that means. I know what it means because dot, 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 if you could finish that out, like what it means to have a fundamental sense of belonging. Uh this is the right this is this is the the path of 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 deeper practice is we are all shaped we're shaped by all sorts of conditions and causes and circumstances and time and era and place and location and so on and so i theorize that something has to transcend that something has to transcend all of the various ways in which we're shaped otherwise how do we transcend everything that we've inherited since we've essentially inherited everything Right? We've inherited and been shaped by everything outside. But something has to be pervasive. And that's where I start with like, okay, and so how do I find that that which is pervasive? For me, the way that I know it is first and foremost by developing the habit of being able to return to myself, to be, to be able to return to myself. And from that place of having been able to return myself to, to feel this sense of okayness, like I'm okay, right? Th like this is okay. Th this being, this person, this moment, there's a okayness that goes beyond all of the waves that are happening in my life externally. So maybe right outside the surface of my skin, you know, there is a sadness, but me, even my sadness is okay. Like there are circumstances that are upsetting or that I wish it wasn't the, that, that wasn't the case. But in a single moment of returning to myself, there is, uh, some people might call it being at peace. Some people may call it at being aligned. Some people may call it all sorts of things. Um, I call it like basic okayness, right? Basic okayness with me as I am in this moment, as it is. Um, and that is a practice. Uh, we have to develop that practice in order to uh, be able to attune to, to what it feels like in us. But I, but I know that every single one of us listening to this does have a reference point for what that is. Um, and the reason we have, I know we have a reference point is because we know when we're not okay, right? So that we know we're not okay is predicated on the fact that we have a sense of there is a place of being okay. First of all, I love that phrase, basic okayness. It feels extremely accessible when people talk about being at peace and things like that. I think, I don't know about that, but basic <laughs> okayness, that really works. Now, I know you emphasize the relationship between embodiment, and I want to understand more what you mean by that, and having this sense of belonging or basic okayness. Why put such a great emphasis on embodiment, and what do you mean by that? Um, we have a lot of theories and ideologies, uh, as I like to say, that are inherited, meaning uh, I have a dear friend, Greg Snyder, and he says, you know, we, we don't have 
personal thoughts. We have private thoughts. That, and, and by that, he means that all of our thoughts come from someplace else. They, they come from you know, the ideas of the time and the era and the space that we're in. And so we tend to attach ourselves to, these, to the thoughts that we have, to the thoughts that we have received as if they're real. Uh, and so we need some kind of an arbiter of truth. And for me, that's the body. The body is the place that we have to inhabit, <laughs> but, you know, for good, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, and so the body is actually where we can discover the thing. What what is the truest of the true of the true to us? I don't I don't mean the you know the, whether the sun is you know yellow or whether it, you know the sky is blue or anything like that. I mean what feels true to us, our own truth. And that is discovered and, in, and inhabited in the body because the body is where we live. And so to be embodied is to be in tune with our body's own, our, um, and when I say body, I mean our mind, body, the connection of our mind, heart, and bodies. Uh, some use the term soma, right? Our soma, uh, our entire bodily systems reality. What is true for me in this particular circumstance, this convergence of time and space and age and race and class and so on. No one has what is true for me. I'm, I'm the only one that can be the arbiter of that. But if I'm in the arbiter of it only with my mind, then I'm using other people's ideas. My body becomes the place that I can uh, find resonance with what is true for me. Um, I, I can't explain it more than that because everybody has their own, right? It's like, like everybody has their own. And, and it's that place where you go, oh, this is true. It's like falling in love. And you're just like, oh, that that's true. There's no argument. There's no fighting. You know, it lands in you as this is what we, we move from like, I think is true. We move from looking upward and into our head and dropping down somewhere. Generally, it's often around in our belly. We talk about gut instinct and we know it to be true for ourselves. So to be embodied is to be able to get in tune with that and, and hopefully to uh, return to that truth over and over again. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions about this that may seem obvious, but I don't think they're necessarily obvious to the listener, which is how do you know when you're disembodied in some way? How do you know? What are the signs that you know in your own experience? Uh, that I'm not able to feel uh, comfortable in my own skin. That being in my skin, there's a constant state of being pulled by my mental activity. Uh, and so that I don't feel settled in my body and in my skin. And when you discover that experience, I presume it still happens at times, you find yourself, this happened, that happened, maybe a bunch of things happened really quickly all at once, and you're like, holy God, what do you do to re-embody? Well, I call it um, dropping in or returning to myself. Um, and in order to do that and get it out of the woo-woo space where it sounds like, well, what does that mean? Um, I've chosen to bring my attention to a particular location, which is in my belly. Um, and to have that, um, a lot of people refer to it as their core or in, the, in my, my lower belly. Uh, 
and I bring my attention back to my lower belly and kind of sit there, right? It's sort of like I drop, it's almost like you just sit down <laughs> right there in, in your low belly and take a moment of resting there with my breath. And so that that's the whole activity. Like I return to myself, I drop in, I pull my attention away from external and draw my attention inside into my low belly um, and with my breath. And I rest there for a moment. And if I can manage it, I rest there again. <laughs> and if I can manage it, I rest there again. And so that dropping in for me is a returning, we can, you know, people get weirded out by the term self and they go, wait a minute, is there a self? I'm not getting into that. Uh, I'm just talking about in this physiological being that there is a point of returning to myself that I find clarifies the external goings-on, including the external goings-on of my mind. Rev. Angel, you're a gorgeous meditation teacher, and I wonder if as part of this, you could actually guide us, guide our listeners right now in that practice that you just described related to resting in our belly. And part of it is, you know, you never know. People come to a conversation like this. What level of embodiment are they experiencing as they listen? And I want to go even deeper with you into this topic of belonging, but I think it would be great for all of us to be more embodied as we do so. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, and I want to share, Tammy, that the reason that I developed this particular um, practice, and I call it a point meditation, is precisely because I realized that so many of us are asked to do practices and invited to do things. And our ability to discern what is right for us and what is true for us just doesn't exist because we're not even comfortable being with ourselves or we don't have the capacity to return to ourselves, to even have discernment about what we're being asked to do and how we feel about it and how it's landing with us. So it's all theory <laughs> until we can actually have a point of reference for it is how is this for me? And this returning to a point of reference away from the distractions of everything else is, is my prescription, if you will, to, to undergird any other kind of practices we have, right? To be able to return to ourselves and be the arbiters of our own truth, to have our own belonging is the way that I um, feel that every single person would then have a way to, to discover uh, what works for them. So the practice is meant to be really simple, and I'm going to say what it is, and then I'm going to walk us through it. It's really as simple as this. We're choosing a point where our attention awareness is at, and everything else is other than point, <laughs> and that's, that's the practice. So we choose a point. That's where our attention awareness um, rests, and everything else is other than point. So that when we find ourselves at other than point, we simply come back to point. We don't argue with it. We don't uh, judge it. We don't concern ourselves whether we were getting it right or not. We just come back to point. So here's, here's how it works. So I invite you to find yourself a comfortable space of being upright and present. Even if you're walking, this is about um, really choosing to be present for this duration of time. And bring your attention to your breath. 
wherever it is that you notice it in your breath, in your body. And as of all the places that your attention could be, now that you've located your breath, allow your attention to flow with your breath down into your low belly, just beneath the navel and just behind the navel. So just right at that kind of midsection of our body, we call it the core. And take a moment and let your attention just rest there on your breath as it is in the low belly. Because we get a little caught up and we think, oh, if I'm focusing here, uh, it gets really tight. We're just gonna add a sense of awareness so there's some spaciousness around that area. So it doesn't have to be super precise. It's just right there, basically your attention, awareness on your breath, resting in the low belly. Once you feel like you've kind of dropped in there a little bit, we just call that the point and everything else is other than point. And so thoughts are other than point. Worrying about the past or the future is other than point. And when you find yourself at other than point, because you will, just pick up your attention awareness and return it gently and firmly to point which is your breath as it rests in the low belly. So if you find yourself fantasizing, you can return to point. If you find yourself doing a to-do list, return to point. Over and over again, however it is that you find yourself at other than point, you simply gently and firmly bring your attention back to point. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And then you can bring any formal practice of a point meditation to close by some kind of gesture that just allows you to release uh, any tightness around it or any sort of overly tight focus. And maybe that, you know, sometimes people just touch their the palms on their legs or they touch their heart or they bring their palms together, whatever it is that works for you. Uh, the main thing is, is that really anything can be point, uh, but we start with this particular location because physiologically it does quiet our nervous system and it kicks in our parasympathetic system so that we begin to feel a sense of relaxation and ease uh, that was not just my speaking. That is actually the way your body responds to returning to that particular location in your body. You know, Rev Angel, I can say from my own meditation experience that what you're describing in terms of bringing our attention and awareness down into the lower belly has this huge calming effect. I've never understood why, though. So as you're saying, it relates to how our physiology and nervous system operates. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so we have um, we have a sympathetic nervous system, which is our uh, reactive. We want to uh, see what's going on, and it makes us overly um, uh, uh, alert. And we have our parasympathetic nervous system. They call it the relax and re relax 
um, and and actually it's also for our digestive system. So relax and repair, right? So relax and repair or uh, get ready to fight or <laughs> get ready to flee. So fight or flight, repair and relax. And so parasympathetic nervous system is um, is induced by, first of all, by attention on our breath and also um, in, in our core, in our gut, which is where our digestive system is. When we bring our attention to our gut, we're basically telling the whole system we're okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, the distinction in the point practice, and I want to say this because a lot of people may be thinking, well, I do that, you know, and then I name. There's no naming involved, right? There's no noting. There's no anything else. It is literally just there's a point and there's other than point. And everything else is other than point is what you come back to point for. And the the precision of it is, and the simplicity of it, which is what's so gorgeous. And for me, it tells me that we have available to us all of what we need to be able to generate a feeling and a quality of belonging to ourselves. And it's right there. And it's so simple and it's so precise. Um, and in an era in which many people have been, um, I want to say, um, distracted by external forces or overly placed their attention on teachers that have maybe uh, gone astray and, uh, and and made people feel qu- like they question their own practice, I felt like we all need a practice that is entirely our own. Beautiful. Now, I want to ask a question that I could imagine is part of the space right now listening to this. So belonging belongs to me here, the belly, feeling embodied, feeling at home. But look, when I get up off of my chair or stop walking in nature, being in my belly, I'm facing a world where there's so much injustice, where I'm clearly being considered part of the out group and discriminated against. And there are structural systems in place that say, you don't belong. We can't just describe this conversation as a type of uh, self-belonging and embodiment practice. So how do you put that all together, Rev Angel? Well, you know, I'll, I'll say, you know, if, if you don't know me, right, I'm black, I'm female, I'm queer, I have a disability, I've got all the little markers for being, you know, out-group, marginalized, oppressed, and all of the things. And I developed this practice precisely for that reason, because I needed to be able to have a way in which my belonging is inherent, that it is uh, not about what other people think of me, what other people are telling me about who I am, about what I can accomplish, what I'm allowed to have, that um, that intrinsic sense of of the the human um, desire to to have to have the have a sense of belonging to not just other not just people, but to be- belonging to ex- to existence. This practice for me was my way of developing the capacity to situate myself in that and to situate myself in that not only when I'm doing the formal practice, but also when I get up off the cushion and I go out in the world and things feel shaky and someone is uh, threatening my sense of belonging to a group or to a situation, an institution, uh, a sitting group, uh, whatever it is. 
that I have that, 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 that is with me and it is with me all the time. It doesn't leave me because it is me. And, and it, it is, you know, you, one could say it is a deeper version of wherever you go, there you are. There mm-hmm. I am belonging to myself. It's inherent and it can't be taken away. Um, and uh, let me, I, I will say, and we have been taught that it somehow our belonging is predicated on what someone else says. And I think that that is faulty and we need to uh, return to ourselves and be able to have that. Uh, and, and that is essential for, especially most essential for people that feel themselves um, marginalized in all sorts of ways. One of the sessions in the series is focused on forgiveness. And I, I want to bring that up because I think one of the things that can happen is people can think of, you know, okay, this is kind of up to me, but I'm still really mad, in fact, outraged and grief stricken, all of that, because all of the ways early on in my life, I wasn't given a setup where I belonged, you know, early attachment wounding, other kinds of wounding. And I want to understand more the emphasis you place on forgiveness and speaking directly to that person who says, yeah, I have, there's a lot there for me. And no, I haven't forgiven. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to give a little bit of background about this practice in particular, because, um, you know, it was my practice and it was what I did and I shared it with some people. And 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 actually we got a, a group of people going, um, it's still to this day uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, this body of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all ages, um, some people had a practice of meditation before, some people had none, all like queer um you know, in the in their seventies, from their twenties to their seventies, uh, all sorts of people, people that have been wounded in many different ways, um, and so I will I will share that consistently that this practice has allowed people to get underneath the response to the wounds and the ways in which their families, their communities, their moms and dads. Uh, did not create a space, their, the societies and institutions did not create a space of belonging for them. And it has helped them get in get in, and come back to what they're feeling that is underneath that, which is the sense of rejection, um, fear, right? Uh, all of these kinds of wounds that come about as a result of that. And by reconciling with one's own feeling, one's own experience, by coming into contact with one's own feeling and own experience, Um, A lot of the ways that we then turn our attention to what the other people have done, it it dissipates, it it goes away, because what we're really wanting to do is to have some healing around the, the hurt that that has caused us. And the fact is, is that if we have to wait for everyone that has done something to us <laughs> to, you know, to come and we have to reconcile with them and fix it and have them uh, say they're sorry, we, we have a long journey of suffering ahead of us. And I'm about liberation. I'm, a, I'm about us being able to be free in and of ourselves enough to be able to move through our lives in a way that allows us to be as thriving and powerful and uh, dignified um, and okay as we can possibly be. So the forgiveness is actually our way of ritualizing uh, permission to move on, 
to not have our ability to reconcile pain and difficulty be incumbent on working it out with the other person. So it isn't about forgiveness. I go and get them and tell them that now I have forgiven you, but it is a self-practice of releasing ourselves from the dynamic in which we are wanting something from the other person that we can't necessarily uh, ever get. Um, if, if we do get it and that comes about, that's great. But for me, uh, liber liberatory practices are about what we can do for ourselves, how we can get ourselves free of the ways in which we are caught or stuck in the dynamics of the past or fixations on the future and allow ourselves to simply be present. Okay, Rev. Angel, I'm going to ask you a question. I've asked this question before, and I, I do feel I'm making progress. It's slow, uh, but I'm still going to ask it again, <laughs> which is when it comes to forgiveness, I used to ask the question and I say, well, what if you're at like 80%, but it's just that last 20% you can't let go of, you can't move on, you can't find the real actual freedom uh, that's possible. And now I'll say, what if you're at like 97%, you know, but there's some part of you that's still just like holding on. It's not, you can't quite fully say, you know, I'm moving on now. I'm only holding myself back by continuing to roll through the narrative. What, what do you do with that? I'll just say 3%. I might be exaggerating 5% that's left. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that we, we, one of the things I love about the point practice is that it is really about being um, present with what is. And so it's not a bypass. It's not a suppression. And so it's like, okay, you know what, that's what I, that's where I'm at. And so we can, we can hold that with a sense of, um, you know, kindness and consideration for ourselves. It's amazing. Uh, Y'all are 97% good. Right. And then say, acknowledge for ourselves that this 3%, yeah, I'm still working with that. I'm good with it. I'm okay, right? And I'm okay. And I'm going to move forward with that because that includes us. And it doesn't, it doesn't um, situate us in some kind of aspiration to going beyond exactly where we are. We, we can say, yes, I'm, I would like to do this. And right now I'm good. And, and I'm also acknowledging that that 3%, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, I'm still working with it. I'm not quite ready. We have people say that all the time. They're like, yeah, I'm still working with this and I'm good. And there's a, an amazing power in being um, okay with even the, the places in which we, we wish that we could do something different, or maybe somebody is encouraging us. We could be okay with that too. Uh, this is not, you know, we're, this is not a sport where we're trying to, you know, get some kind of brass ring and accomplish and sort of overcome ourselves. This is about being present with the truth of where we are, being able to face that, seeing if there's something that we can work with and whatever feels like, nah, this is just where it is right now. We can be okay with that too. Okay. And in, in the midst of doing this belly point practice, if what comes up is some type of intense emotional experience of some kind, we're going back to just being with the point. That emotion isn't really to be part of the object of our meditation, is it? Or how do we work with the intense emotions that might come up? Yeah, so intense emotions are bound to come up. And so um, 
the what we're doing is actually being embodied. And so we're coming actually back to the sensation, right, that surrounds the emotion. Emotion arises as a reaction to the sensation. So what we're doing is we're coming back to the sensation, not to have a dialogue or discussion about it or how do I feel about it, but rather the sensation itself. If it feels too intense, just back off a little bit, right? Just have a little a little bit of space around it where it's like, okay, I can kind of get next to it. I can sit right down next to that sensation. Um, but I always say to people, if your path to liberation is creating contraction, and I think cr contraction and suffering are synonymous, then uh, then that that then you're not creating you're not uh, generating liberation right and so back off right and allow yourself the space to say like this is as close as I can get right now and that's what we're returning to we're not trying to overcome maybe therapy is for that maybe you know maybe there are, there are other practices in this point practice all we're doing is presencing ourselves with what is coming back to point. And anything else that is not presencing ourselves with it, what is, we're simply letting that be. If we are finding that we are creating contraction in returning, right, then just ease off, right? Sit, move a little bit further away from what that point of intense emotion feels like. Just set a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. Uh, and that's why I call it attention awareness, right? Which is awareness has spaciousness and allows us to move. Attention is precise, but awareness has some spaciousness. And it's like, oh yeah, I can get kind of close to it and I can look at it from here and, uh, and feel comfortable and at ease here. Um, that doesn't mean that we're not able to sit with discomfort. We can sit with discomfort. But if the discomfort is creating new suffering, then that's not a path to liberation. Now, this is a very powerful statement that for you, suffering and contraction are synonymous. How did you come to that and what do you mean by that? Uh, about a year, two years ago, you know, time is all funny now. Uh, about two years ago, I was um, at Upaya Zen Center and they gave me the opportunity to do some classic Buddhist teaching. And so in the, in the Buddhist uh, teaching, there's this fundamental idea that life is characterized by what is called dukkha. And dukkha is tr often translated as suffering. <laughs> A lot of people are like, wow, these Buddhists are weird. They're always you know, talking about life is suffering. And so it's really characterized, right? R life is characterized by suffering. But I realize people get confused by that idea. And so it sounds like a bummer. Um, and so in order to bring it to an embodied understanding, I was like, well, what is that? What, how do we know suffering? How do we know big suffering, little suffering, in-between suffering? And I realized in an embodied way, the way we can recognize it, it empirically in our body, is, is contraction, that when we contract, when we move away from life, when our body is uh, pulling in from away from life, that that is suffering, that that's suffering. So that contraction is suffering. When we are thriving, we move towards life. We, we allow ourselves or we are present in it and we, our body's our nervous system can be relaxed and at ease. Once our nervous system begins to contract, we can describe that as suffering. 
and and so it is my embodied way of speaking about what can begin to become a theoretical space of suffering. Mm-hmm. It also seems like there are some really good moment to moment practice instructions or life instructions in what you're describing. Yeah, definitely. So even in in a moment, right, if I notice that the top of my belly slightly to the left gets that little feeling of pulling in, it's like, oh, yeah, there's some contraction there. And if I check in with that feeling, it's a sensation of contraction. It's like, oh, I don't like the way that person said this thing to me. And and every emotion that we have is traceable to a sensation in our bodies, by the way, if, if in case that's not uh, apparent. So every sensa- every emotion we have is actually, f- it, it is an emanation of a sensation. And so everything that shows up for us, if we can trace the sensation in our body, then we can um, find some relationship with it. Uh, the other way I think of as suffering is is to be out of relationship, right? When we're out of relationship with ourselves, then suffering arises, contraction arises. And we use a phrase, I found myself. Well, when we find ourselves, that means we're away from ourselves. And so this idea of coming back to ourselves is so that we, um, not that we don't leave ourselves, but when we do leave, we as soon as we recognize it, we come back. So yeah, that's that's an embodied way and as you described and are pointing to, it's a it's a way that we can have a moment to moment practice of being aware of our experience of suffering, not as this big, you know, thought space, but rather here it is, right here in our body. I'm I'm contracting. I, I feel my buttocks tightening. I feel my legs tighten. I feel my toes curling up. Right. I feel my shoulders drawing up. I feel the back of my head getting tight. I feel this in my body. We're, we're embodied beings. And so our suffering happens in the body and our liberation happens in the body. Now, one of the things, Rev. Angel, I wanted to understand more has to do with the subtitle of the series, From Fear to Freedom on the Path to True Community. And it's this notion of what is true community? Uh, that I'd like to understand. And, you know, I hear from so many people, I'm looking for community. I don't have community. There's an epidemic of loneliness. There's no such thing as community. It's a myth. Online community, come on, that's not community. Uh, What do you mean by true community? For me, true community is you have a feeling um, in the presence of of others as which begins with yourself, but you have a, and you have, it has to begin with yourself in order for you to know what is true for you, right? So you have to know what it is in yourself to feel at ease in your body and to not feel as if you have to cut a part of yourself off or leave a part of yourself behind in order to feel that sense of belonging. So true community is when you can be present with others and you do not have the sense of having had to check part of yourself at the door in order to gain access to membership to that community. I say I would say that that is a club. It's not. It's not community. Uh, and and we all know some ways in which we fe- we we just take it as a given 
that if I want to be a part of this group, community, family, I have to leave this part of myself, I have to leave the queer part of myself behind. I have to leave the racial, racialized part of myself behind, the, the part of myself that speaks colloquially in this way, at the way that I speak with other Black folks. Uh, I can't say folks, I have to say people. Uh, right? Like my, my voice has to get a little bit tighter. I have to hold myself in a certain way. And so that leaving of part of ourselves behind before we know it, we don't, we don't know who we are anymore. And so true community are spaces in which we can, we feel that we are accepted in the wholeness of who we are. And that doesn't mean that every part of who we are is expressed in every given moment. That's not possible. Right, but that the 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 body, the collective of people that we are uh, in relationship with, that there is there there is no request to leave a part of ourselves behind in order to be um, accepted in this this group of people. And you know, this is a, a difficult question to ask, but I'm going to ask it on behalf of someone uh, who might be having this experience. What if someone says, you know, I don't have true community anywhere in my life. I don't have it with my family. Can't bring my full self there. I don't have it at work. And I don't have a kind of intimate partner that I feel I can bring all of me to. I don't have true community, Rev Angel. Yeah. And that's why you have to begin with uh, developing that sense of your own belonging. Because uh, when you are, uh, cl the closer you are, right? And this is, it's ongoing. The closer you are in relationship to yourself, the more that you will generate um, connection with people that uh, allow for you to be who you are. We get in a, a dynamic with you're with your family and there is a, there is a underlying agreement, a tacit agreement that this is how we be together. And you leave that part. And as long as you leave that part and leave that part behind, then we'll be, then, then we can get along here. As you become more aligned with yourself, uh, it no longer becomes tolerable for you to leave parts of yourself behind. And as a result of that, you will generate relationships with, and you'll mm -hmm. seek out and you will find relationships with people that will be comfortable with allowing you to be who you are. Um, that is tolerable for you is the first thing that needs to shift. And, and, and it will shift as you become more um, comfortable within, within your own being. And there are plenty of people that are out there. Uh, we all find our ways to those kinds of communities. Uh, but, but first, we have to have the uh, commitment and impulse to go and search for it. And that commitment comes because we're committed to ourselves. We're committed to becoming whole. We're committed to the healing of those parts of us that have been left behind. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things you teach on, you brought up this uh, phrase in the series that we can come upon these crossroads of belonging in our life, and that these are these crossroads where uh, we have to make some tough decisions, as you're describing here, telling telling ourselves the truth. And you know, I thought for myself, the biggest crossroads I ever came upon had to do with academia. That I had to admit, I don't fit in the academic world. I think differently. I feel differently. I write differently. I'm not an academic. <laughs> but you know, at 20, that was a, a big, terrible crossroads for me because everything in my upbringing had prepared me to be a successful professor. And that's not what was happening, actually, <laughs> if I told myself the truth. And I was wondering for you, Rev Angel, 
what would you say have been the big crossroads of belonging? When, when, when I asked this question, do you think of one or two crossroads that, that you had to go through? And what was that like? How'd you make it through? Yeah. Uh, I had, I'll say one very early one, um, is as a, as a person that was mixed, uh, you know, mixed in, in, in sort of my locations and how people related to me, the, the question that you asked right at the beginning, um, about this choosing places of belonging and having to find your own belonging. I, I, the, the crossroad that I had to make for myself is, um, that part of what it meant to be a part of uh, black communities, uh, the, the, at least the ones that I was a part of at the time, was that I I had to kind of like make fun. It was like we we there was a thing about making fun of other people, right? And I grew up with a lot of Asian people, and at the time there were lots of jokes about Asian people. We were always making jokes and you know it was sort of part of the culture at the time and Chris Rock would make jokes about Chinese people and so on and I you know really wanted to be a part of like you know the black crew and you know be down with the folks and I just realized that I couldn't do this uh, that that wasn't going to uh, be how I was going to create my sense of belonging was on the backs of other people and as a person marginalized and as a person oppressed that was a critical decision for me to say that I'm not going to let the overarching society and the demand to try to claw your way into belonging mean that I was going to stand on the backs of other people. Um, the other one is, and I'm going to actually change my mind midstream about the the other one. Uh, the other one that was really critical for me, and it's actually connected to my sense of the uh, of forgiveness and how I built my 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 understanding of forgiveness, is I was abused when I was a child. Uh, and I had a, um, it was a woman that was my father's girlfriend at the time, and she was quite abusive. And then later I went to live with my grandfather and he lived near where she lived. And I was uh, moving through my life in this way in which it was, um, it was, it, it was like you you just didn't deal with stuff like that. You just kind of like put it aside and you just kept moving. And that's what I was always told is you just keep keep moving. But I had to decide that I was going to confront this person and go back to them so that I could feel at ease in in my own body, even though that meant disrupting in my family the um, this, this, uh, secret that was like something that nobody wanted to talk about anymore. So through that, I, I confronted both forgiveness, which is I, I forgive, forgave that person so that I could move on. Um, and I also, uh, allowed myself to disrupt the secrets in my family that, uh, many of us, many, many people in the family wanted to keep quiet. You know, I want to uh, talk just a little bit more about going through these crossroads of belonging, because I want to hear from your perspective, but just to share, one of the things I found is that a tremendous amount of human capacity is developed when we go through a crossroads and we are true to ourselves. Like it's talk about a way to grow yourself. There is nothing like it. I mean, it's a kind of walking through a fire. And I'm wondering how you see that. What happens when you actually choose in your language, true community instead? Like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this thing. It's not true for me. 
Yeah, the way that I feel that it happens in my body is that I find greater resonance with myself, right? Like, so I find more ease in my body. I find less contraction. That's what I mean by more ease. Um, I find that the 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 arguments that I have about like, do I do this or do I do that? Do I uh, do I um, let this happen or do I let that happen? You know, do do I let other people? In other words, do I let other people and external things determine my path? Right. And what happens for me is that every time I go through a crosswords, I become more and more clear that I am the only person that can live the life that I have. And that any time that I am not living in a way that is true to myself, even if it upsets people that I love and that I care about, that the fact is, is that I'm not giving them the whole of who I am to begin with. And so that the only way that I can have true relationships with people is to be true to myself. And the only way to be clear about what it means to become true to myself is to move through those crossroads and to make the difficult choices of perhaps um, losing people, losing face, losing position, losing access, losing things that are external uh, in favor of that resonance with a belonging to myself, that I have to be able to tolerate living in my body and in my existence. Um, and that that is paramount and more important to me than anything else, not because I'm selfish and because I just don't care about any, anyone else, because that's the only way that I can actually be true in, the re in my relationships in my life. It's the only way that I can have true community is to be true to myself. All right. I just have two more questions for you, Rev Angel. The first one is to understand a little bit more about true community for you within your Zen lineage. No. You're the second Black woman to be named a sensei, which is a term for a Zen teacher in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. And I thought to myself, how is it that you've been able somehow to work within your lineage in a form of true community? And I'm saying that because I think a lot of people find a lot of difficulty <laughs> with uh, various aspects of these Eastern traditions and the culture that came with the traditions. And how are you working this out? Mm, I, I, I mean, I didn't. And is the truth, you know, I, my exploration of belonging, I, the, the thing that I was always almost going to say about the crossroads was actually coming to the crossroads of having to decide that being true to myself was more important than my uh, titles and the, you know, all, all of the things that seemed to be required of me in the conventional Zen lineage. And so I was a breakaway. I, I broke away and decided that you know, staying true to myself was more important. And so I broke away from, you know, from the, the, the priestly path as I was supposed to do it. I broke away and started my own community. I broke away uh, when my, my teacher at the time uh, resisted that and, and, and felt that I should, um, you know, not be supported as a result of that. I just, you know, kept going my own way. Uh, and, 
eventually, I think either they realized that they weren't going to be able to, you know, to contain me. Um, I, I ended up being, um, you know, I, I think I want to say being, um, being received by particular people in the community and they, they just had to live with it. But I, but I had to break a lot. I broke, I broke away a lot and, uh, it was not easy and it went against everything about how we were trained, about how it was supposed to be. But I already had from the incidents that I shared with you earlier, I already had the sense that like, well, the only way that I can be true, I don't, I don't need to be a Zen teacher or a Zen anything if I'm not going to be true to myself. And so I really put all of the uh, work and practice and the you know movement that I had uh, attained in that lineage on the line in order to be true to myself. Um, after you become a Zen a sensei in the Zen lineage, there's a there's a tacit agreement and, and I think also an explicit agreement that then you you know people have to leave you be to do what you will do. And so I'm un, I'm pretty unbothered by what other people have to say as a result of that. I want to say to people, I've made a habit of being true to myself, right? I've developed a habit, a consistent habit that feels more natural to me than anything, than, than not being true to myself. And you can do that. Every single one of us can do that. And I think we're all entitled to do that. And so I've had to um, I've caused disruption. I've pushed back. I have, um, you know, caused fissures in that process, uh, many times painful, painful breaks in relationships with people. Uh, but I feel clear and I feel true to myself and I wouldn't have done it any other way. I, I wish there weren't so many moments of pain for people, but I wouldn't have done it any other way. Breakaway sensei. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, people have asked that, you know, quite a few times. They're like, wow, how, how have you done that? Um, I've had to give up a lot. And I, you know, at this age and at this moment, it can seem like from the outside, like, oh, you've got this and that and you've achieved, you know, you know, wrote your own book and d done all of these things. But I have given up access um, and entitlements over and over again, um, you know, income, so on and so forth, you know, you name it, I have given it up um, in, in favor of being true to myself. Well, I just want to take a moment and uh, recognize you uh, from my heart and a really a deep bow, deep, deep bow, because I know something in some small amount, at least, of the uh, courage that it takes uh, to be a breakaway. So how totally awesome Rev Angel is. Yeah. I thank you. All right. The last question I wanted to ask you is in this series on belonging, you share that you've held really for yourself this question about developing a deeper understanding of the process of change, how people change, mm -hmm. how people commit more to themselves in the context of this conversation in a path of liberation. Uh, what are some of the key points you found about understanding the process of change that can help people in that process, wherever they might be as a listener. <laughs> I found the main reason that people don't change is because they don't want to. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty gosh darn good. No matter, no matter what they are saying. And what I mean by that is uh, that we, we have ideas about changing, 
But if you look deeper and you're not changing or you're not moving along the path, whatever path it is uh, in the way that you want to, it's because there is something that you value more and that you're more committed to. Uh, that you may not be acknowledging you 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 or you may not be just be in touch with, and so that that's one that the only reason people <laughs> don't change is because you know they're you're not committed enough or you have a higher order of priority or commitment whether explicit or implicit and so if you go searching for it and figure out what it is, uh, I love to give the example of um, I think about going, you know, running in the morning, but I have a higher priority of sleep. I have a, an autoimmune illness and sleep is the thing that allows for the most healing. So I prioritize that. Mostly it's hidden. <laughs> so what it ends up is I get to the, you know, five o'clock and I go, wow, I didn't run again. It's because I chose something over it. Um, the other thing that I find in, and it is again, why I developed the point meditation is because actually most of the practices of rigor that that is that are required for any kind of change practice is, are predicated to us being being able to be aware that we're off track and if you don't have a practice of being of coming back to yourself then you don't you 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 will not have a practice of being able to understand that you're off so you have to actually be able to return in order to understand that you're away in other words you have to be able to have point in order to understand other than point because the whole juice of any meditation practice is not in being on point, and it's obviously not in being other than point. It's actually being aware and then taking an action and, and, and coming back. And so in order to have any change practice and process unfold, you have to be able to be aware that you are somewhere other than where you intend to be. And if you don't have a practice that enables you to take action at that very moment that you realize that you are other than point, um, then your, your practice of change is going to fall, fall apart. Um, and then that deeper commitment, right? That being able to sort and discern what is, what is it that matters? So I talked about that place in our belly and our core and returning to that. The other reason that it's the core that in the that low belly that we return to is because the core in 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 the yoga tradition right that uh, it's the third um, chakra you, or the dantian or the hara in all sorts of systems it's where it's our seat of power it's where action comes from and so if we return to our seat of action and we couple that with uh, an awareness of what it is that matters to us, we can couple what matters to us and be clear about what it is that matters to us most so that we can take, take action on it. And if you're not clear about what it is that matters to you most, you will not be able to take action. I have to say, Rev Angel, this conversation has been really uh, healing and empowering for me, and I'm sure for our listeners. And I just want to thank you so much. I thank you so much. It's always, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish we could do it more. Yeah, you and I, we're going to do that. I've been speaking with Rev Angel Kyoto Williams with Sounds True. She's created a new audio learning series. It's called Belonging, From Fear to Freedom on the Path to True Community. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. 
And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.